you have elementary age kids or below, we would love for them to go be a part of what we have happening with our Vine Kids ministry. You can grab a seat, and they're going to go right out here. And I see Patrick and Cooper leading the way out this direction here or right out the back. Um, it, we believe it's a really exciting time to be part of this church. We believe that God is doing a lot of exciting things. It's been a, quite a journey. On Wednesday night, we gathered up here for a, a prayer and information meeting and just shared our heart together and spent a lot of time praying about um, what was coming up and kind of where we've been. And, and we looked at kind of the year past and we talked about a few things that we were dreaming about for the future. And I kind of laid out some, some goals that I have for 2016 or that I believe that God is leading us to that involve things like discipleship and, and living missionally and thinking holistically different about what it means to use and operate around here. And, and I'm just excited about what God is doing. This is a really I think, very exciting time in the life of our church. We're seeing a lot of, of great things happening. We've got this new men's Bible study starting. We've got a new life group that's launching, uh, I think, next Sunday for sort of a family-focused kind of a life group. It's going to meet up here if you've got kids, and we'll have some child care. We just have things that are happening, I think, that are, are really opening the doors for opportunities for us to reach new people with the gospel, all right? And, and what we're going to look at this morning in the book of Acts is really that call as a church. Like, what does it look like for us to truly live and proclaim the gospel and not just be focused on the sort of nurture and maintenance of ourselves, but to use what's happening in Acts chapter 19. And really over the past five years of Paul's life, as he spends five years in between two cities, and he lives this sort of gospel picture of consistency and urgency and clarity. And we're going to explore what that looks like today and how it sits in the context of where we currently are as a church and sort of our call moving forward in 2016 and beyond and our own personal call as followers of Christ. So for those of you that haven't been with us or maybe you're here for the very first time or maybe you're here for the first time in the past eight weeks, you don't understand the journey that we have been on. And uh, I know that some of you are probably like, I can't believe we're really starting this again. But look, we're going to finish Acts, okay? We're going to get through it. September 7th, 2014, we began the process, and it has taken us quite some time. But we knew that going in, 28 chapters, 1,007 verses. We were going to go through every single word. And so this is just the process. We've taken several breaks in between, but we are picking back up in Acts chapter 19. And because some of you haven't been with us, or maybe we've just been a while, I'm going to give us a, a tiny short recap historically uh, of the book and kind of catch you up to speed with where we are in history before we dive back in. Now, those of you that are here kind of for the first few weeks, this is really how I love to teach. Like, I really love to teach through Scripture. I love to unpack it. I love to look at it. I'm not a topical teacher. I don't pick three friendship and kind of explore that out. Like, I really just love to introduce the Word of God to you and let you kind of my preacher is to introduce you to what God is doing in His Word and then let you out. thing that I can do as a teacher uh, or as even as a preacher is introduce you to a love relationship with the Word of God, period. So that's why I love kind of going through these things verse by verse. But ba ba Acts is a, is a powerful book. Acts is actually a book that, that sort of launched our church, believe it or not. We were working through the first eight verses as a small community when God sort of began to move this sort of church planning direction for us. And so it's got a lot of, of purpose uh, for our, our community in, individually, but really it's the call of the entire church. Acts is the picture of the birth and movement and call of the church and the Christ followers. It's who we are called to be together, and it's who we're called to be individual. It's much more than just a letter. It's actually a calling on our lives. Now, a lot of you will know that Acts is actually the companion volume to Luke. Luke wrote them both. He wrote the book of Luke, and he wrote the book of Acts. And originally, they were just one big volume. Uh, scholars call it Luke-Acts. They weren't really divided up. And they were side by side, and it was a continuation of the sort of picture of Jesus' life, right? It was death and the ascension, and then begins with the birth of the church and goes all the way where Paul takes the gospel, and we're going to get to the end of Acts, to the gospel in Rome in front, or tries to get it in front of, of Caesar. And it's this incredible expanse of the birth of Jesus all the way through the church's movement through the first, the first century. And it's, it's a really powerful kind of book. And, and Luke... Uh, is really a historical storyteller. He writes 
this letter, Acts and Luke, he writes them with a historical eye, kind of demonstrating not just the person of Jesus, but the historical picture of what was unfolding. And he does a very detailed job in talking about names and encounters and faces and people. And he paints this sort of really powerful personal picture of history. And over our journey over the past 49 weeks that we've talked about Acts, we've seen some of the greatest stories imaginable. Now, Luke uh, is an interesting guy because Luke is actually not one of the original disciples of Jesus. Most people are surprised by that. If you remember, Luke is actually, uh, he's not Jewish. He's a convert. And, and so he, is had, he has had his life changed by the gospel, by people sharing the gospel, and he has become a follower. In fact, his life was so impacted by the gospel that he became a traveling companion with uh, Paul. In fact, we see in the book of Acts, he uses the term we a lot, like he and Paul are traveling and sharing in these journeys together, especially part at the end of the first and the beginning of the second missionary journey. We see Luke kind of um, in kind of movement with, uh, with Paul. We also see later on in one of Paul's other epistles that he, uh, he refers to Luke as a doctor. So he's got that going for him, which, you know, Whatever, it's pretty cool, I guess. Uh, back in those days, I'm sure it was a little different than it is now. But he was a doctor, uh, and so he's, he's kind of got this sort of historical, scientific eye for things. It's just sort of the, the way that it is. Now, Acts is a, a picture of more than just the birth and uh, kind of growth of the church. It is actually an invitation. And what we've seen in the past 19 chapters is the invitation of our church and us as individuals to join God in his movement in the world, the redemptive picture um, of history. And, and it's an invitation to join that. Now listen to where we are up until chapter 19. And I could go through all this history to get you there, but I'm not going to. All those things are online if you want to listen to all those messages. But, but we are at coming to the end of the third missionary journey. All right, so Paul has has been on three journeys. The gospel has taken root all over the world, known world at this point in time. Um, it has traveled to places like Thessalonica and Philippi and Berea and Athens and Corinth. It's traveled all over Asia Minor. Uh, Paul and his companions have taken the gospel to places that it's never been. We are seeing churches being kind of uh, born in areas where there was no gospel picture. And the, the missionary movements are really the beginning of the entire mission of the church. That the church is called to be a sent people in the world, right? To take the gospel out there, to not sit here in our comfortable chairs, in our little rooms, and congratulate each other on getting together, right? But that the church exists to be sent. So we don't exist to gather here on Sunday morning. We exist to be sent. And we see that unfolding in Acts, that we exist to be sent out there. And the missionary movement begins with Paul and his companions as they take the gospel message to the known world. In Acts chapter 19, we are seeing the, the conclusion of the third missionary journey. Now, the third missionary journey is one where Paul is returning to a lot of the places that he took the gospel to in the first missionary journeys. He heads up from Syrian Antioch, which is his hometown, where his home community of believers is, and he heads back into Asia to the cities of Lystra and Derbe and Iconium. So you've got this awesome map of the world right here of the known world of the Middle East and you got Syrian Antioch and then you got Asia up here and, and Paul's traveling up here right and the intention is to try and go back to the cities in which he shared the gospel to encourage and strengthen the believers this exact same mission of the second missionary journey to go strengthen those that he has shared the gospel with but we find Paul being able to enter into the city of Ephesus. Now, those of you that have been with us for a while remember, that's no small feat because Paul has been turned away from the city of Ephesus for quite some time. So in the middle of the second missionary journey, Paul's going up through Asia, and he goes from uh, Iconium and Lystra and Derbe, and he tries to turn down into Asia and into the city of Ephesus, which was a huge sort of trade city, and the Holy Spirit stops him. Verse chapter 16 says you basically can't go in there. He's, he's kept from going in. And then the Holy Spirit begins to shut a bunch of doors. And for 350 miles, Paul and his companions walk north because there's no place else to go. And they go from having seen all the sort of incredible movements of God and planting churches and people coming to know Jesus to this sort of lonely walk through the Middle Eastern desert going, God, where are you? And they end up at the edge of the G and C, right? And they get there, and they don't really know what to do, and so they just begin 
to pray. And God shows up in a really powerful way, and he takes them to the cities of Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea and Athens and Corinth, and the gospel takes root in all those places. In fact, those names should sound really familiar because we have letters in the New Testament that are written to the churches in those cities, right? So, so Paul ends up taking the gospel there, and after spending about two years in Corinth, he meets a couple named Priscilla and Aquila, and he takes them with him, and he sails back towards Jerusalem, and they stop in Ephesus. Coming back around the other side, they stop in Ephesus and they get out. Priscilla and Aquila stay there and Paul goes to the synagogue and the synagogue rulers there start begging him to stay, which never happens. Everywhere Paul goes, they throw him out. They beg him to stay. Please stay here. And Paul senses in his heart that God is saying, not yet. Not yet. So he gets back on a boat and he sails to Jerusalem, having been kept from Ephesus for really about four years. Third missionary journey begins. Paul goes back up from Syria and Antioch again. Same thing. Lystra Derby, Iconium. This time, as he turns, the doors open, and Paul's able to go down into Asia, and he enters the city of Ephesus. And the reason I, I, I point that out is because we spend a lot of time in the fall talking about the challenge of waiting on God, right? That, that we have this deep desire to see things happen in our lives now, and oftentimes God's timing is completely different. And we see that picture in the life of Paul. Paul tried to get into Ephesus multiple times, but God just kept telling him to wait. And that waiting sometimes was not easy. That waiting sometimes involved 350 miles of walking in the desert. And we've been in places in our life like that where we feel like, God, I I want this to happen. I need this to happen. I need a new job. I need a new whatever. I'm waiting for this. But you seem to be absent, and I'm calling out to you, and, and nothing's happening. And what we talked about was understanding that God's movement and timing is oftentimes different, but it's always perfect. And at the right time, God opens the doors, and Paul ends up back in Ephesus, and the gospel is going to take root in the lives of people all over Asia. So in the end of chapter 19, we see that Paul spent two years in Ephesus every day. Actually, he was there for three months teaching in the synagogue, and they kind of ran him out. And then he rented a lecture hall, And he preached every day for another two years. So for two years, almost two and a half years, every single day, the gospel. And Acts 19 says he did it until every person in Asia had heard about the Lord Jesus Christ. God's timing being perfect. And where we're going to pick up this morning is the missionary journey is is coming to a close. Paul has announced that he is leaving Ephesus and he's going to go back to Jerusalem. All right? But he's going to do it in a really weird way. He's going to do it by going 1,500 miles out of the way to circle back around to Athens and Corinth and then sail back down to Jerusalem. And he sends a few guys ahead of him. And, and then he says, but here's what's going to happen. I have to, I must get to Rome. And Paul had this deep desire to get to Rome and share the gospel in Rome and ultimately before, the, before Caesar. And it is going to be the driving factor of the entire rest of the book. The entire rest of the book is going to be built on Paul's movement, feeling called by God to take the gospel um, to Rome. So this morning we're picking up in 19. Paul is teaching in Ephesus. The the missionary journey is drawing to a close. He's about to leave, and a riot breaks out. I mean, a big riot breaks out. And we're going to explore that riot, and we're going to explore the gospel. So lots of words to get us to a place where we are. Paul is teaching in this rented lecture hall. He's been there for well over two years on a daily basis, committed to the people in Ephesus, and a riot breaks out in the street. So if you've got your Bible, open it up to Acts chapter 19, and we are going to start in verse 23, and we're going to explore this right. It's a, it's a bit of a lengthy, uh, it's like 20 or so verses, but we're going to read the whole thing and then we'll go through it because you can't really, can't really break it up. It's part of the joy of working through Scripture. So let's, uh, let's pray together. Lord, I know that that's a lot of of words, and some of it's confusing if we haven't really been through the book from start to finish, but I think the context is important. I think context sets the tone for having us really understand what you're doing. God, your move of faithfulness that we see in Acts is is incredible. The way that you, you led these movements of people to take the gospel to the world, Lord, even in the midst of heartache and struggle and, and broken relationships, God, we saw, we saw broken relationships, we saw fear, we saw hurt, we saw near death, yet you were so faithful. Um, Lord, I pray that as we open your word this morning, what we'd see is we'd, we'd begin to understand the really deep call that we have as a church to live and share this gospel in a way that is not driven by ourselves. 
in a way that isn't driven by our own desire for our own church, but is really driven by our desire to see people come to know the God that has changed our lives. That's it. It's really what drove Paul and his companions, was they wanted the world to know the God that had changed them. Lord, it's a singular focus of the church. The proclamation of the gospel for the salvation of mankind. Take a moment in your own heart and just ask God to teach you this morning. It's just something that you need to hear. Maybe it's tiny, maybe it's huge, but just ask God to teach your heart this morning. Pray for someone in front of you or behind you. Just Even if you don't know their name, we do this each week. Be in the habit of praying for other people. Pray that God would move in them. He would teach them. Lord, we pray that you would be glorified and exalted as we read your word, that you would teach our hearts this morning. We ask this in Jesus' holy and perfect name. Amen. So we're going to pick up in Acts chapter 19, but verse 21, I want you to hear it because this is the transition verse, says this, that after all these things that happened, there's some pretty significant events that happened. With, we could get into those later. But Paul decided that he needed to go to Jerusalem. So he passed through Macedonia and Achaia, but he did that. That's why going 1,500 miles the wrong way. Um, and he says, after he'd been there, he said, I must visit Rome. And we're going to revisit that verse today. And he sent two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, to Macedonia while he stayed in the province of Asia, in the town of Ephesus, a little longer. Verse 23. About that time, there arose a great disturbance about the way. A silversmith named Demetrius, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought in no little business for the craftsmen. He called them together along with the workmen of related trades, and he said, Men, you know that we receive a good income from this business, and you know and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus, and in practically the whole province of Asia. He says that man-made gods are no gods at all. There is a danger not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the goddess Artemis will be discredited, and the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. When they heard this, they were furious and began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! Soon the whole city was in an uproar, and the people seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia, and rushed as one man into the theater. Paul wanted to appear before the crowd, but the disciples would not let him. Even some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul, sent him a message begging him not to venture into the theater. The assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. Most of the people did not even know why they were there. The Jews pushed Alexander to the front. And some of the crowd shouted instructions to him, and he motioned for silence in order to make a defense before the people. But when they realized he was a Jew, they shouted in unison for about two hours, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. The city clerk quieted the crowd and said, Men of Ephesus, doesn't all the world know that the city of Ephesus is the guarding of the temple of the great Artemis and her image which fell from heaven? Therefore, since these facts are undeniable, you ought to be quiet and not do anything rash. You have brought these men here, though they have neither robbed temples nor blasphemed our goddess. If then Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a grievance against anybody, the courts are open and, and are their proconsuls. They can press charges. If there's anything further they want to bring up, it must be settled in a legal assembly. As it is, we are in danger of being charged with rioting because of today's events. In that case, we would not be able to account for this commotion since there is no reason for it. And after he had said this, he dismissed the assembly. All right, long story, but it's important for us to understand what's led up to it. And so what I'm going to focus on today is we'll work this story a little bit, but I want to focus on the, the gospel that's being shared that led us to this riot. 
Because here's essentially what's happening. Paul's been teaching in the city for at least two years and three months, maybe even more, on an everyday basis. And Acts 19 tells us that everybody in the entire province had had the opportunity to hear about the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's a silversmith there named Demetrius. In fact, he's probably in charge of the guild of silversmiths. He's like in charge of all of them. And he gathers them together along with a bunch of other tradesmen, people that had a specific skill set. And he says, hey, are you guys not figuring out what's going on here? Right? The, the, the goddess that is sort of, uh, we worship as a major deity here in Ephesus, right? The goddess Artemis. She's in danger of losing her royal majesty or her sort of divine majesty because this fellow Paul, right, is going around telling people that man-made gods are not gods at all. And because the people were hearing the word of Paul, they were hearing the word of God, and it was changing their lives, they weren't going and buying these, uh, these shrines, these idols made of silver from people like Demetrius, and they were losing their financial income or their sort of affluent way of life because people weren't buying these silver idols. Now, the goddess Artemis was a uh, kind of a big deal. She was worshipped as a major deity in Asia at the time. Uh, in fact, her temple is one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was 425 feet long, 220 feet wide, 62 feet tall, and had 127 marble columns that go all around it. You can go home tonight and Google it and look at how incredible this thing was. It was massive. It was served by hundreds and hundreds of priests and prophets that served as prostitutes in that temple because she was the goddess of fertility. And they would create these silver or stone statues of her. You can actually see what they look like. There's a lot of, of replicas that have been found all over Asia. About this big. And people would buy them and they would keep them either in their homes or in little sheds behind their homes. And they would go and offer sacrifices to her there. And then they would go outside of the city and they would worship her in the temple, right, by doing the things that you think you would do to honor a fertility goddess. And there was a lot of financial livelihood for these guys. Well, Demetrius gathers them together and basically says, not only are we losing money, but let me make an appeal to you about something actually a little bit different. Our trade is losing its good name, right? So this isn't really about money, right? It's about the fact that our trade is losing its good name. And what is more, what is more, this goddess who we, everybody knows Ephesus is sort of the keeper right, of her image, right, she is losing her divine majesty. Well, the people get all kind of fired up, as you can imagine, Demetrius kind of paints this picture, and, and they get pretty fired up, and they start sort of chanting out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, and they chant it out, and they take it to the streets, and the whole city begins to get stirred up, and it says they seize two of Paul's traveling companions, Gaius uh, and Aristarchus, they grab them and they take them to the theater. Now, right in the middle of town was this massive amphitheater in Ephesus, huge. It was about 500 feet in diameter, but it would seat 25,000 people. It was massive. And the whole city essentially rushes into this thing, and they are just going absolutely crazy. And they seize these guys. And it says they're all sort of caught up in this fury that most don't even know why they're there. They're just screaming and shouting. And Demetrius has whipped this crowd up into this frenzy. And everyone's going kind of nutto. And, and, and Paul's going to go, and he's going to speak in front of the crowd. But the disciples say, don't, you can't. Right? It's too dangerous. Even some of the city officials who were Paul's friends send a note to him and say, look, you can't go. It's just absolutely too dangerous. Crowds are going crazy. And the Jewish people there are beginning to sense like this is not going to go well. And we want to make sure that we distance ourselves from the Christians. And so they push this guy by the name of Alexander up there to kind of quiet the crowd, most likely to say something like, hey, hey, listen, listen, we are not Christians, right? Because they are not from Ephesus either. The Jews were spread out as well, and, and they were doing their thing, and they wanted to make sure that, that it wasn't confused that they were uh, not actually part of this kind of Christian movement. And so Alexander gets up, and it says that when the crowd realizes that he's Jewish, they just basically shout him down. And for two whole hours, right, two whole hours, they shout the same thing over and over again. They shouted in unison, in verse 34, for two hours, great as Artemis of the Ephesians, for two hours, screaming and screaming and screaming and screaming and screaming. 
Finally, the city clerk gets up. City clerk stands up and he motions the crowd, and he's from Ephesus, and so they give him a little bit of respect, and he, he quiets the crowd, and he says, what are we doing? Like, what are we doing, right? We can't do this. These guys have not really done anything wrong. They haven't robbed. They haven't even really blasphemed the goddess. We are, are worked up for nothing, right? There's a process here. If Demetrius and his fellow tradesmen have got an issue, let them take him to court and press charges. But right now, we are almost guilty of rioting. In fact, we are all going to get in trouble. So quit it, and let's let them go. And essentially, the crowd quiets, and it disperses. Now, it's an interesting story here at the end, because it's really the only picture that we have of Paul's two and a half years of teaching in Ephesus. Chapter 19 really just introduces us to the idea that he's kicked out of the synagogue, and for two years he teaches every day in this rented lecture hall, and then at the end of two years, this giant riot breaks out, and then we're going to transition to something completely different. So the question on the table is, is why the riot? Why does Luke take the time to put it in there? Well, one, probably because it's this massive thing. You can't deny it. 20,000 plus people taking to the streets trying to kill Gaius and Aristarchus and Paul doesn't show up and, and the whole thing is just going sideways, right? But also the, there's a series of events that have sort of led up to this that I think are, are really important that we've got to understand because Demetrius stumbles across something, I think, that is, is, kind of moves his heart in a way as he understands the gospel message and really what Paul is teaching, that sort of changes his dynamic and gets him to a place where he is willing to basically incite this crowd because he's so upset and so um, kind of uncomfortable with the way that Paul's teaching has left his life, his livelihood and, and sort of his spiritual kind of comfort and his financial comfort and all those, those kind of things. And I started thinking, I started thinking about the last five years of Paul's life because they're really different than the first part of the missionary journeys. The first part of the missionary journeys, we see Paul go into a city, and he kind of gets, gets planted there, and then the city basically goes crazy, and the leaders run him out of town, or Paul escapes for his life. But he, he's not able to spend much time in these places because as he teaches the gospel, the place comes to an uproar, and he has to end up fleeing. But he lands in two cities back-to-back where he spends an extensive amount of time. At the end of the second missionary journey, Paul ends up in Corinth where he spends two years. Teaches in the synagogue till they run him out. And then he goes down the street to this guy's house by the name of uh, Justice, essentially. And he teaches in his home for a year and a half. And he develops these deep relationships. And the same thing happens that happens in Ephesus. The, the crowd goes, a crowd builds and goes crazy. And they seize them and basically put them before the pro-council. And the pro-council says, these guys haven't done anything wrong. The gospel's free to be preached. Paul teaches in that time, sails back home, ends up in Ephesus, and the exact same thing happens, except Paul spends two and a half years in Ephesus. Riot breaks out. City clerk stands up and says, look, they haven't done anything wrong, and the gospel's allowed to be preached. And the, the important thing of understanding that is that the gospel is going forward, and it's going to end up in Rome. But what I started thinking about, about these five years is there's a significance to the way the gospel was being shared and the way the gospel was being lived that has got to impact us as a church and it's got to impact us as followers of Christ. And the first thing that I want us to understand is the consistency in which the gospel was being lived and shared by Paul and his followers. And I say consistency, not in terms of the message itself, but in terms of the relationships and time. So for both of those periods of time, in Corinth and Ephesus, Paul spent over two years or right about two years, every day teaching the gospel. Paul and his companions leveled their lives into those cities and into those people groups. And they spent every waking moment developing relationships and teaching and discipling people. We are such a results-driven kind of culture. We want things to happen and we want them to happen now. We want to bring a friend to church, and we want them to have their lives radically changed. We want to see our brother, or our sister, or our mom, or our dad. We want to see their lives changed now. We want things to happen on our time frame. And we want them to happen when we need them and want them to happen. But the gospel, or sharing the gospel, is often a discipline of a life lived together. It's often a discipline of winning the right to speak love and truth and grace into someone else's world. 
It's oftentimes a sort of a painstaking walking with people, being consistent in their life as they go through whatever it is that they go through. Sometimes it takes two years, four years, eight years as we begin to live and pray consistently with and for people. I begin to think of relationships in my own life. And I've had several people that I begin to pray for that I thought, I, want, I, I deeply want God to move in their life. I deeply want God to do something. Family members or, or close friends. And, and a couple of those have taken up to eight years before I even saw anything. And some of those, God has not even done anything at this point in time. But part of what it means to be a gospel consistent community is that we are committed to people. We're committed to our community here, but we're committed individually to the lives of our neighbors and our friends and our coworkers, and we will not give up the call to share the gospel with them. See, for most of us, our sort of gospel or evangelism effort involves trying to bring someone to church, right, in which we sort of give some kind of emotional plea, and we hope that they have a response right then and there. But that's not really what evangelism looks like in Scripture. Oftentimes evangelism in Scripture is about spending time with people over and over and over again. Inviting yourself or them into your world and you into theirs. And sharing the truth of the gospel and the love of God with them over and over and over and over again. Until they look up and say, you're still here? Like really? You didn't leave? Maybe there's something to that. When we, and I've said this multiple times. That when we spend time in China... Right? We've been over there multiple times. They have friends in China. The gospel is not a quick share, everybody receives it, and now we're all different kind of thing. It is so costly to them that you have to win the right to walk alongside their lives as they weigh out what this is actually going to cost them if they say yes to it. It is a multi-year commitment in the lives of people to see one person come to know Jesus. Our missionaries over there will tell you they will spend two and three years working with one individual before they will see even one glimmer of spiritual hope in someone's life. Part of our call as followers of Christ is to become gospel consistent. Who is it in your life that you've been praying for since they were eight? Who is it in your life that you know God has called you to love and to share with, and have you given up on them? Have you quit inviting yourself into that relationship? Have you quit inviting them to your house, to dinner, to church, to whatever? And every moment does not have to be this, this sort of perfect, proselytizing, kind of cube moment with them. But it can be walking through life with them and just saying, Look, I love you so much that I want you to know about the God that has changed me. And I will sit here and tell you whenever you want to know. I mean, I lived this way with my brother for years and years and years. For years I prayed for him. In fact, the junior year in high school, all the way up to when he was about 28, I prayed for my brother. I would share the gospel with him. I would talk to him about Jesus to eventually he just didn't want to hear it anymore. And then finally I just said, look, I'm not going to tell you anymore. I love you. I will be here. I'm never walking out on you. I'll never give up. Period. He knew exactly where I stood. And I never left him. I never gave up on him. never quit inviting him. But there came a point where I just said, look, I'm not walking out on your life. He's about 27 years old. Now he's about 28. And uh, he called me one day and he said, hey, listen, I, uh, he had just recently gotten married. And he said, I'm, we're going to this new church and, um, you know, my wife really wants to go. And so I think I'm going to start going again, which inside I'm going, oh, sweet. It's great, right? Oh, that's, nah, that's pretty cool, man. It's great, whatever. And uh, he said, she's going to this women's Bible study and, and, and so I'm going to start trying to go to the men, right? And I'm trying not to be real excited. And he goes, but listen, I, uh, I don't really know what to do. I don't know how to act. I don't know what to do. I don't want people hugging me. Like he was, that's like his thing. Like I don't really want to be hugged a lot. And so um, he goes, is that, you know, is that what happens at these things? I was like, well, I don't know where you go, but maybe. I mean, I don't, I don't know. But as he said, they're going through this book, and uh, I'm kind of intimidated. Would you mind just getting together with me for lunch once a week, and we could talk about it before so I don't look goofy? And I thought, well, yeah, of course. But as I look back on that, what I was thinking of is that, and I didn't do it perfectly. In fact, I got frustrated more times than I didn't. But the consistency of walking with him for almost 10 years, praying for him for 10 years, to give him a window where he finally just said, look, this this brother of mine is not going away. And so when I came to a spiritual place where I, 
I didn't know what to do. I knew exactly where I was turning. That's gospel consistency, right? Now, I've failed more of those attempts than I've done right, but that's the way that we walk with people. The church is called to be consistent in people. We don't give up on them. Anyone is welcome in this place, and we will love you and love you and love you, right? We're not looking for you to make a quick fix in your life, but we want to be consistent with the message that we talk about. We want to be consistent with the way that we love you. We want to be consistent with the way that we are present. It's why we love this neighborhood. It's why in 2009 and 10, when we first started trying to do community up the road, we felt deeply called to stay here. We want to be consistent to this community. Right? There's this gospel consistency that we see in Paul and his companions that they just sort of sunk their life. And when Paul would even leave, he would leave people in place to lead those movements. So who is God calling you to be consistent with? Right? The second thing that we really see there is a sort of sense of urgency. And at first you might think gospel consistency and gospel urgency, like how do those, they kind of feel at odds, but really they're sort of beautiful partners. You know, see, gospel urgency is that sense that understands that we have in the message of the gospel and the, the relationship that we have with Jesus Christ and the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, we have the keys to eternal life. And that without Jesus, the Bible teaches, there is no abundant life here on earth or eternal life in heaven ever. He is the only way. Jesus himself says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. We understand that. And a gospel urgency says, because I know that to be true and people are dying, physically and spiritually dying without Jesus, I want the world to know. It was what drove Paul outside of his little community in Antioch and to the world so that he could tell the world about the God that had saved him. It was a gospel urgency that said, I want the world to know. In fact, we see it in 19 when he says, I have to go to Rome. I have got to get this message before Caesar. And the reason Paul's driven that way is because he knows that if he can get the gospel before Caesar in Rome, the entire Roman Empire will hear about the gospel. And Paul is driven by the sense of urgency that says, this truth is so real that it is driving me to tell the world. We have a sense of urgency in our lives about a lot of things. We've got a sense of urgency about paying bills, Right? about punctuality, about work, about whatever. But for most of us, we have no sense of gospel urgency. We're more con concerned with offending people by talking about Jesus than we are with our own spiritual eternity. Yet we're sitting on a relationship with Jesus that has saved us and delivered us, and we're petrified about telling anybody else. If we really believe this is true, that we were dead without Jesus, stuck in our sin, dying and forever separated from God. And he stepped into our lives and he rescued us and he gave us new life, redeemed and restored. And then he tells us this is the key to eternal life and we sit on it as if we're afraid you're going to be offended by the one thing that will save you. See, the church on some level has lost its urgency. There's no sense of urgency Gospel urgency and gospel consistency go hand in hand, meaning I will be in this thing for the long haul with you, but I want you to know why I'm here. I'm here because I love you, because Jesus changed my life, and I believe he wants to change yours. That's why. That's why I won't go away. That's why I love you. That's why I have this deep desire for you. But the reason most of us aren't urgent in our gospel kind of movements is because we don't understand our own condition. A lot of us have been raised in church. We've been thinking that sort of, you know, we're really not all that bad. But the truth is, is that without Jesus, every single one of us is dead. Spiritually dead. Sin has run through our bodies. It has corrupted our soul. And without Jesus, there is no hope. We have been saved. When you surrender your life to Jesus Christ, you are saved. Saved from certain death and destruction. And we have to realize our own condition. And when we do, it should propel us forward to want to tell the world. If this is what Jesus did for me, why would I not want the world to know? Why would I want to hold on to this thing for myself as if somehow, right, I'm embarrassed to tell you about it? At the, at the kind of fear of offending you. 
There's a way to love people with the gospel without offending them. It's called authenticity. It's called looking at somebody and saying, I love you so much that I want to tell you what's changed me because I believe that God wants to change you. It's not telling you your world is wrong and all the things that you do are wrong. It's just telling you that God is real. And as Paul says, there's only one of them, right? And I want you to know that truth. Now, gospel urgency is all through Scripture, all through Scripture. We see the sense of Jesus is coming back, and we want the world to know. As a church, we've got to be driven by this. We've got to be driven by this sort of mentality that says, I must get to Rome. Like, we must share this truth with the world. If we exist to huddle together in this room and pat each other on the back and kind of have feel-good service and share donuts, like, I want out. Like, I don't, I want to be a part of a church that wants to be out there, living in the cracks and crevices of culture, living in those relationships, walking alongside our mom who's been an atheist for 15 years and looking at her every day and say, I love you because God loves me and I will walk with you forever. But I want you to know why. To look back at all those kids and our friends that were roommates in college and, and reconnect with them and say, listen, I love you so much and God has changed my life and I want you to know about him. So let's get together. Because you know what? An urgency understands that we're really not promised a tomorrow. We're just not. We talked about this last week. We don't really know what's going to happen when we walk outside those doors. There's got to be a sense of urgency that goes along with our consistency, right? But then finally what we see is this picture of clarity. There's a gospel clarity that sort of gets us to this place. So we've got a riot in Ephesus. Something led to that riot. You know what led to that riot? It was Demetrius's kind of understanding of what Paul was teaching. And what was Paul teaching? Paul was teaching that there is one God and that gods are not made by human hands, right? There is one God and he is not created by human hands and therefore worshiping this statue or this goddess outside of town was a mistake, and it was a lie. And the entire area was so affected that they quit purchasing these things. So much so that Demetrius is going, hey, this is a threat to my way of life, my spiritual way of life, my trade, my comfort, my financial way of life. Demetrius got it, and the town got it, and the city got it, and the area got it. They knew what was being taught because for two years, Paul taught the same truth over and over and over. Paul taught gospel clarity. Now, the reason I say it this way is because much of what comes out of our mouths, out of our churches, out of our pulpits, out of whatever, is not necessarily gospel. We cloud things with our own moral soapboxes. We cloud things with our own personal passions. We cloud things with our own political leanings. And we try and tie them together to gospel pictures in the name of Christianity. And what we end up doing is presenting an entirely untrue picture of the gospel. Because the gospel is one central thing. It is the person of Jesus Christ that came, died, and was raised from the dead so that you and I might have life. That is the gospel, and that is what Paul is consistently and constantly teaching. There are no other gods, right? But we cloud it with our sort of Christian social leanings. Right? Just go ahead. Get on Facebook. Read what your friends are writing. Right? In the name of Jesus and Christianity, this is why we have to vote for so-and-so. Right? This is why we have to do this. This is why you can't do this. And we grab our soapboxes and we stand on them and we say, this is gospel. Because we interchange the word gospel for morally true. It's not gospel. Now, there are certain things that the Bible teaches, right? But that's not gospel. There are certain things that the Bible teaches about truth and about morality and about what God desi desires for us, absolutely. But gospel is simple. It's that you are dead and dying, and in your dead kind of state, Jesus stepped in, and through his life, death, and resurrection, gave you access to eternal God, and you did nothing to deserve it. That he rescued you when you were dead. That while we were still sinners... God died for us. That's gospel. And Paul was clear in how he taught it, and people got it. 
But you know why Demetrius got so offended and so upset? Because it's a really difficult truth to handle. The gospel is not always going to be well received. When you actually really talk about the fact that there is no hope outside of Jesus Christ, that there is no hope outside of a rescued relationship by which God does the work saving us, no hope, it's not well received. Demetrius didn't receive it well. Why? Because it affected his spiritual life, it affected his work life, affected his financial life. And it's not well received because the gospel at its very core is a message of death. It's a message of death. Because what happens? Jesus' death calls us to die to ourselves. And none of us want to do that. We want to follow Christ and live our way. But the call of the gospel is to come and die, to lay down my desires, my wants, my needs, my things, my fears, my stuff, to lay them down, to die to myself and say yes to Jesus. It's the gospel call. And that is not received with smiles and puppy kisses. Like it's often received with anxiety and fear because I don't know how to let go of my own wants. It's our biggest fear, right? Letting go of ourselves. But a gospel clarity is what we're called to preach. It's why I don't get up here and do a lot of political things and do a lot of social things because the reality is is that what I want you to understand is a clear picture of the gospel. Scripture talks very specifically about other things. But we present the gospel, we want to do it in clarity. We were dead, and Jesus, through his life, death, and resurrection, gives us opportunity for eternal life when we surrender our hearts and lives to him. But it's a call to death. And it's a call that God is inviting us to, to die to ourselves. And as a church, I want to be driven by this sort of urgent, right, this urgent, consistent clarity that just says, this is what we're about. We want to be sent out there for the long haul with people to share an absolute crystal clear truth that we need Jesus and that he changed us and desires to change you. Crystal clear, right? We can complicate it up a lot, and we will, but at its core, that's where we are. In your own life, as you think about your own call to share the gospel with people, how does this relate to you? Right? Sometimes it's going to cause riots. Sometimes you're going to have family members that that reject you. Sometimes you're going to have people that look at you and say, you are are a Bible beater, whatever, you're out of here. Like, I can't deal with you. You are intolerant or you are whatever because sometimes the gospel causes riots. But when you stand firm, even in the middle of all those, and people look back around and have any month in the road and they say, you're still standing here? Even after I said all those things to you? Absolutely. Right? Because I'm in this thing for the long haul because I love you because God has loved me. Sometimes sharing the gospel gets names hurled at you. Just what happens. We live consistent, we live urgent, and we live with clarity when it comes to the gospel. And we understand that at times it's going to cause riots. But God is always, always, always at work. Even in the middle of the riots, God is always at work. We talk about this table. We, just, we celebrate communion once a month, really just as a way of, of we pick it once a month. We could do it every, every day, but we, we, we do it once a month as a way of, of reminding ourselves that this gospel message is deeply true. And it's not a habit for us. It's part of our worship expression. It's part of the gospel picture. In fact, it is the gospel picture. It is in its simplicit, in simplistic, kind of clear lay out the picture of the gospel. It is Jesus saying, I have done this for you. All of it for you. This morning as we prepare to take communion together and celebrate this and close our time in worship together, I want you to contemplate the things that God is whispering to your heart. Like, who do you need to be consistent with? Who do you need to be urgent with? Who do you need to be clear with? What is God calling you to as a follower 
of Christ. Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you for the opportunity to share your truth. God, I thank you that you are, you are, you are the picture of consistency. You are the picture of clarity. And yet, God, you invite us to be part of your movement. You invite the church, individuals, to be part of your redemptive story. Lord, we are an impatient, results-driven people that are called to be a patient, God-honoring follower that just says, God, we trust you. Lord, this table is a perfect picture of the gospel, of your life laid out for us. When we take this meal together, we are proclaiming a beautiful truth that you died and rose so that we might have new life. So God, as we prepare to take this meal, we prepare for worship, I ask that you would move in us, reminding us of this beautiful clarity that comes from this table. In Jesus' name, amen. So on the very night that Jesus was betrayed, on the night that he would wash his disciples' feet, on the night that he would begin to tell them of what was about to unfold, he gave thanks and he took a loaf of bread and he said, this bread is my body and it is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after he took the bread, he took the cup and he said, this cup is my blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. This is the new covenant. That whenever we take of this bread and this cup, we are proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes again. We take communion here by means of intinction, which is a really fancy way of saying when you come down, take a piece of bread and dip it in the cup, and then you can eat it. We'll have stations in the front and in the back, but it's an expression of our worship. So we invite you to stand and sing and spend time with the Lord until he calls you to come be part of what is happening, and then stand up and make your way to the front or the back, and then when you're done, remain standing in your seat, and we will close our time in worship together. I'd like to invite our servers to come forward this morning.